Thanks, Jono. Good to see so many of you here for the EU public meeting today, and I do hope that next week you're planning to come along to lots of the public meetings for the EU's festival that starts next week, the next three weeks. Remember, different talks, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for the next three weeks. So there's lots of opportunities to bring your friends along so they can hear lots of different things about Jesus as we look at the topic of what are you longing for. Different talks, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, next week, week after, week after. Check out the EU website for all the details. Good to see you here today. I want to start by talking with you. We're trying to encourage you to think about a particular problem. It may not have ever occurred to you that it is a problem, but I think it is. It's a problem of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a bit of a problem. Apparently there is a course you can do if you get to honours in philosophy philosophy here at Sydney University, if you make it all the way through to doing honours in philosophy in fourth year, uh, there's a course you can do and the course is forgiveness. Forgiveness obviously is such a complicated philosophical concept that you can't handle it until you get into honours philosophy. Then you could start to explore it. You might have never occurred to you that forgiveness is a complicated issue, but actually forgiveness... There's all sorts of moral questions that we should have about forgiveness. I'll try and illustrate it by a make-believe story. You decide out of your great love for your family that you offer to do the grocery shopping for your family. So you get in the car, you drive down to the local you know, mall, supermarket, whatever, you park your car, you go into the grocery, you go into your supermarket of choice, you fill up all your groceries, you're on your way to check out. There it is, there's the checkout. You found a checkout where there was no one there and you're headed straight for it. Yes, I'm a winner today. I'm a winner. And then someone looks you in the eye and cuts in right in front of you. Yeah? What's your honest reaction at that point? Internally, what is your honest reaction at that point? Call it out. Go on, call it out. Someone, surprise. No, other people are going, really? Just surprise. What's your honest reaction? What is it? Anger. Anger. What else? Frustration. Frustration. Yeah. This person has wronged you. That's your immediate reaction, isn't it? That's why you're getting angry or frustrated. But, but, and then you, but in your better nature, in your better nature at that point, what do you know you should do? What do you think you should do? Your better nature. What does it say to you? What? How would you let it slide? Let it go. Just let it slide. I should not be stressed about this. Right? I will forgive them this great wrong that they have done. Right? And maybe that's right. Maybe that's what you should do. Let it go. Anyway, you get through the checkout eventually and you make it all the way back to your car and there's a person standing next to your car looking across your car at you as you make your way towards the car. And looking you in the eye, they take out their keys. And they get their key and they go down your car and turn around and walk away. And your better nature says, just forgive them. Is that what your better nature says at that point? Just forgive them. It's just a car. It's just a scratch. Is that what? Or are you starting to go... Actually, I'm not sure it is just right to just let that slide. Maybe actually there should be some sort of, there should be some consequences for that person. There should be repercussions. There should be some sort of recompense, some sort of restitution, maybe. Anyway, 
puzzled by what you really should be expecting at this point. You jump into your car, you drive home, you get to your home, and then you found that your next-door neighbour across the road is walking away from your house carrying a cricket bat. And you discover, to your shock, they have smashed every window in your house. Every one. Let it slide. And then you discover that they threatened your family. Just let it slide. See, I wonder if you believe that there is a deep-seated moral order to the universe. Is there a moral objective reality to the universe? Because you believe, I imagine, that there's, you know, the universe is made of atoms and stuff. Sure it is. But do you believe that actually hardwired into the universe there is an objective moral order? Not just an atomic order, but actually a moral order of things that are actually right and things that are actually wrong. Now you might be a deep-seated materialist and think there's only atoms. In which case, I think the logical outworking of your position is you must be an anarchist. But you can push back on that later, maybe. But if you believe that there is a one true living God revealed himself in the Christian Bibles and ultimately in Jesus Christ, then you actually go, that one true living God has created not just a material universe, he's created a moral universe, and there is a deep-seated moral reality hardwired into the universe that we can either accept and live in accordance with or we can rebel against. Because, see, if you want to dig down into that hardwired, moral, objective moral order of the universe, when you dig down into that, what is there at the bottom? Is there just, let it slide, forgive? Is that, is that the deep-seated Christian understanding of the heart of the moral order of the universe? Just forgive. Because when you start thinking about the different situations, not just in my made-up story, but when you think about the actual situations that are going on in the world and maybe the actual situations that have gone on in your life or the life of those you're close to, it just doesn't sit right, does it, to just say, let it slide. Just forgive. That's all. That doesn't sit right with us. Forgiveness is a, is a moral quandary, a moral problem, but it's actually also an existential problem. How am I meant to forgive that person for what they've done to me or someone I care about? How, am, how are we meant to forgive that person for what they have done to others? Now, the passage that we just had read out for us by Jono from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 helps us answer that question. But I've sort of set up the sort of the, um, the question I want you to think about, but I need to set up to you a, a bit of the historical context, I think, to make sense of these particular chapters in the book of Isaiah. So um, I've got a bit of a diagram to just outline sort of where these chapters fit in the book of Isaiah. Historically, historically, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant nation of Israel, were standing on a precipice. Do you know what you know, a precipice is? Like a big cliff. They're basically standing on the edge of an abyss, right? Not a nice happy valley to walk through. No, an abyss. 
a terrifying abyss. What was that abyss? It was the abyss of being sent into exile. So the story, the historical context, was that the nation of Israel, chosen by the one true living God to be his special people in all the world and to communicate his truth to the rest of the world, they had rejected his word and his way. They'd rejected him as the one true living God. They'd said, you're not going to be our God. We're going to worship other gods. Consequently, they had fallen under God's just judgment. And the shape that judgment was going to take was, he said, time out, no more warnings. You've had hundreds of years of warnings through my prophets and now you are going to be sent into exile. There's no getting out of it. It is going to happen. But because of his great love and his compassion for his people, he gave them, even as they stand on the edge of the abyss that they are going to go into, there's no ifs or buts about it, he gives them a word of comfort. It's quite a significant word. It goes from Isaiah chapter 40 through to chapter 66. So it's quite a long message, right? But it's a word of comfort to his people as they stand on the edge of this precipice of exile. It's not that you're not going to go into it. No, you are going to go into it. But here's a word of comfort for you as you head into this exile. That's the big, that's the big picture. So in particular, if we then dive down into looking at this section that we had read out for us, I've mentioned before last week that I said there's five passages, five sections of text in these chapters, from chapter 40 to chapter 66, which focus in on one particular person. A shadowy person, we're told about the person, but he's not really identified. He's just called the servant of the Lord. And he's going to be key in this word of comfort to God's people because God's going to use this servant of the Lord to bring about a resolution to the precipice of exile. He's going to be key. So he's com- they're comforted by hearing about this servant of the Lord. There's five passages on the servant of the Lord. We looked at some of them last week, and today I'm focusing on the fourth passage, which is chapter 52 and chapter 53. Now, when you look at these particular ones, they come in a particular section of text from chapter 51 through to chapter 55. Let me draw a bit of a diagram for you that will make sense then, I hope, of the bit that we had read out for us. First of all, chapter 51 starts with God giving a word of comfort. He says, listen. As his people stand on this precipice, this edge of going into exile, he says, listen up. Here's three comforting promises for you. Three comforting promises for you as you head into this dark valley. And I'll just if you've got your Bible there, let's have a bit of a look. Chapter 51. We'll just look at the first one. The first of the three promises under this heading of listen. He says there, chapter 51, verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Then jump down to verse 3. You'll see what the, the content of this promise is. The Lord will surely comfort Zion, Jerusalem, and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. They're going to go into exile because they're going to be overrun by the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to turn Jerusalem into a pile of ruins. And so the promise here is the Lord will look with compassion on Jerusalem, will rebuild the ruins, but even more, he will turn your wastelands into the Garden of Eden. Now, Garden of Eden, that's way back in Genesis chapter 2. What's significant about that? That is before sin has entered and ruined everything. 
He's going to come, make, it, make it like before sin stuffed everything up. Because why are they standing on the edge of the precipice of going into exile? Because they've rejected God, his word, his ways, who have rejected it because of their sin. He's going to so undo the effect that it's going to be like before sin had ruined everything. That's part of his promise. How is he going to do this? this is the next section of text. How is he going to do it? Chapter 51, verses 9 to 16. Have a look there, verse 9. Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you, talking about the arm of the Lord, who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so the redeemed might cross over? Quick quiz, what's he referring to? He's referring to stuff that God has done in the past. What's the event that he's referring to there as you look at it? Someone call it out. It's the Red Sea. It's the known as the great moment of Exodus where the one true living God intervened, rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and he's saying, like you did it back then when you, with the arm of the Lord. Now, you know, just think for a minute. Does the one true living God have an arm? No, because he's not made of atoms, is he? He's not made of stuff. The one true living God doesn't literally have an arm. It's a metaphor to describe what? To describe his power, his action. When you bear your arm of the Lord, you're getting ready to take action. And he's saying, like you did back then, when you pierced Rahab, which is code for Egypt, when you sort of when you subdued Egypt and you took away her power and you drew out your people and you read, it's going to be like that. That's how he's going to do it. How's he going to undo the effect of sin? Through, the, uh, through his power, the arm of the Lord. He's the one who's going to do it. Therefore, as it goes on in the chapter, from chapter 51, verse 17, all the way through to 52, verse 12, so, therefore, he has three, they're not commands as responses, but they're sort of exhortations. Therefore, because the Lord's going to do this, what should you do? Well, have a look there. We'll look at the first one, 51, verse 17. You should wake up. Awake, awake. Rise up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Right? Why are they sitting on the edge of the precipice? Why are they going to go into exile? Because they've rebelled against the Lord. Because of their sin. Consequently, they drink. They have to drink from the cup of his just judgment. And now he's saying, awake, rouse yourself, because the arm of the Lord is going to rescue you. You who had to drink from this cup, jump down to the end of verse 21, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. He's going to take away his judgment from them. That's how come. Then he will rebuild Jerusalem. It'll be like back by the Garden of Eden. That's what. That's the big picture, right? There's the word of comfort. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to fix everything up. I'm going to do it with my powerful arm, by my intervention. Therefore, rouse yourself, get ready. Okay? That's the big picture. What he hasn't done, though is tell us how he's actually going to do it. How is he actually going to fix up 
the problem, the very problem that has put them on the edge of the precipice. How's he going to fix up the sin problem? How's he actually going to do it? That's where you come to the passage that we have read. Where you come to this servant passage. The answer to the how question is, is see, look here. Here is how he's going to do it through the servant of the Lord. So let's dig in then to the passage that we had read for us from Isaiah 52 and 53, this servant of the Lord. Notice it's about a particular person, this servant. You can see that, chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He, and he's a single person here. He's a single person. He's a servant of the Lord. And it starts out, sounds pretty good. Verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Excellent. This, this servant's going to have a great time. Raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's great. Except then it takes a terrible turn for the worse. Verse 14, as we read it, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. Oh, hang on, that doesn't sound good. Appearance so disfigured beyond that of a human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. Or jump down to 50, chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. Halfway through verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. There's lots of things with which you could be familiar. Maybe you're familiar with fine coffee because you're a person who, you know, chases the great coffee around the place. Or maybe you're a person who's familiar with fine dining because, you know, you've got to get that good food onto your Instagram feed and that's how you do it. Like, I don't know what you're familiar with. Maybe, you, I, actually, I do know what you're familiar with. You're at Sydney University. You're familiar with hard work, right? You just, that's what you're familiar with. <laughs> Suffering is probably not something you would choose to be familiar with. This servant of the Lord is familiar with suffering. That's his lot. And as you stop and think about that for a moment, there may well be people here today and go, well, actually, I am a bit familiar with suffering because of the lot in my life. This servant of the Lord is familiar with suffering. As you, uh, I said, this is the fourth servant passage in these chapters. When you read through the servant passages, the first one in chapter 42, it all seems all very positive, the great things the Lord's going to do for him. We looked at that last week. When you get to chapter 49, the second one, it's all very positive except for one little phrase. One little phrase that just gives a hint of, uh, it's a bit, there's a bit of a dark cloud over this person as well. You get to chapter 50, the third one, and there's a bit more of it that that dark cloud is made of, oh, okay, it's yeah, it's a bit bigger. You get here to chapter 52 and 53 and you just realise how big a dark cloud of suffering is actually over this servant of the Lord. It's sort of revealed by the time you get to this point, which is why some call this servant the suffering servant because of the extent of the suffering that it's revealed at this point that this servant must undergo. How severe will it be? Have a look at chapter 53, verse 5. 
He was pierced. He was crushed. Or down to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's a fairly potent image if you think about it. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. It's an image that would be very familiar to the Jews who this was written to at the time because at central to their life together was the sacrificial system that happened at the temple and they all knew what it was like to see a lamb led to the slaughter where the lamb was sacrificed. But maybe that's just metaphor here, right? He's clearly not a sheep, he's a person, maybe it's just metaphor. But then you read on, actually, verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living. Or verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Yes, this servant is going to suffer and to the point of death. It's not surprising then to see that uh, when people see somebody so afflicted, so disfigured, even going to death, it's not surprising that some would stand and look at that person and go, you must be cursed by God. It doesn't mean they're right, but you can sort of see why people might think that. And indeed, that's what we see here. If you look back to verse 3, he was despised and rejected with men by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In fact, if you read on in verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. So people will think that this person is indeed cursed by God, afflicted by God. And yet, when you read there what's told in verse 9, this guy is innocent. Have a look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So put all of that together. Here's a guy who's going to suffer the ultimate punishment, even to death, he's, but he, he, he himself is actually innocent. So just think about that. What do you think the one true living God's response ought to be to that scenario. Here's a person who is completely innocent and yet is suffering to death. Clearly, the one true living God should say, uh-uh, that ain't going to happen. If he's got any justice, any mercy, right? Any compassion. He, that should not happen. That's not just. And that's where the really surprising thing in this passage is in verse 10a. <laughs> Beginning of verse 10, we read, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Do you feel the moral ambiguity about that? An innocent person, the servant of the Lord, who suffers to death and we're told it was the Lord's will to crush him. That doesn't sound right, does it? That should leave you feeling a bit, how could that be right? Well, what's the answer in the text? 
What's the answer? Well, have a look here. It's actually, the answer is actually woven right throughout this passage. It's, the answer is repeated time and time and time again. Why will this innocent servant of the Lord, why was it the Lord's will that he suffer even to death if he's innocent? The answer is, have a look there. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the key. What is, why is it the Lord's will to, to have this servant, innocent, die? Is because actually he is bearing our sin. Here is the solution to how come Israel, standing on the edge of the precipice of going into God's judgment, how come God can say, but don't worry, I will take away the cup. Because, hang on, if we know about sin, what is the right response of the one true living God to sin? Well, go rewind. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. What, what is the right response to sin? What sin deserves is death. Why was Israel not wiped out entirely? How come the Lord can take away the cup of his wrath from them? How come he can show them that mercy? Because the servant is going to drink the cup to the very end. The servant is going to bear their sins. In fact, the servant is going to bear all our sins. Isn't that what verse 6 said? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What will he achieve? You can keep, keep going down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, explicitly here, we're told that the servant's death is tied back to the sacrifices that the Jews have been offering at the temple. Go right back to the book of Leviticus, where what you did when you discovered that you'd sinned was you offered a guilt offering, a lamb. And yet here... His life has been made as a guilt offering for us. What will he achieve? Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He will make many righteous, justified before the Lord because he's, he has borne their sin in himself. Here is the heart of what God is going to do about the sin problem. Not just for Old Testament national Israel, but for all of us. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was just a preparation for this work of the servant. Because we know from the Bible, it tells us things like that the, the, the blood of goats and bulls was never able actually to atone for sin. What it needed was a person, a human being, to bear the full wages of sin, which is death. We know from Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But in the servant, that blood is shed for our sakes.
Fast forward in time. Fast forward many hundreds of years. I'm going to transport you to the, to the city of Jerusalem. It's after people have returned from exile, it's been rebuilt, and there you are. You're standing on a road outside Jerusalem, and uh, you can see a couple of people. Coming out of the city, you can see a chariot, which means wealthy person, right? Or an important official. Someone clearly from not around those parts, they've got dark skin. Turns out they're from Ethiopia. He's in a chariot, coming away from Jerusalem. You can also see over there a, a guy standing there. And he's, he's, he's getting a message, a message from God via an angel. I don't know how you know that, but just pretend you know that. And, he's getting, and the angel is saying, Philip, go and stand over near that road. And so Philip runs over and he stands near the road and the chariot comes along and then the guy gets another message. Stand by that chariot. Okay. <coughs> Walking next to the chariot. And then a conversation takes place. Do you know this story from Acts chapter 8? Why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 8 and see how the story goes. Acts chapter 8. Philip and the Ethiopian official. Acts chapter 8 verse 32. The eunuch, the Ethiopian official, was reading this passage of scripture. Actually, I'll go back from verse 30, sorry. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? We just read that in Isaiah 53. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? It's a very sensible question. Who is this servant of the Lord? Like, was, was it Isaiah talking about himself or is it someone else? And the answer, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Who is this servant who suffers dreadfully bearing our sins? We're told it's the Lord Jesus. As he dies on the cross, that is what he is doing. Bearing your sin, my sin, in his own body. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. In Jesus comes the reality of this suffering servant. But I want you to think a bit more deeply about this just for a moment. It still doesn't quite seem right, does it? That God would make an innocent person, the Lord Jesus, and someone who's entirely innocent, that he should suffer when actually we were the ones who did the wrong thing. We know Jesus himself was without sin in his own person. How is that actually right? That God punishes an innocent person that doesn't seem just. Well, here we come to the key point that I want to sort of help you understand, I guess, theologically today. It's wrapped up in the very title of my talk. The title of this talk was The Sins of the Saviour. You say, well, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't sin. He was without sin. That's true in his own person. But as our representative, Jesus was not without sin. Because what does this passage in Isaiah tell us? He bore our sins. When he goes to the cross, in his own person, Yes, he he be innocent. But as our representative, he bears our sin 
He's not innocent as our representative. The sins of the Saviour are not his own sins. The sins of the Saviour are your sins and my sins. They're the sins he bore in his body under the judgment of God at the cross. And so because at that way, as our representative, he's, he is bearing our sin. He is guilty of those sins in the way that he's our representative. And so therefore, he justly faces our punishment. He took our pain. He took our suffering. The idea of Jesus being our representative is really important if you want to understand how Jesus can be your substitute. If you want to understand how can Jesus take my punishment from God for my sins, you need to understand that he is actually the representative. So so when he dies, you have died. Your punishment has been dealt with. I'll try to think of a different example of representative. I think your netball team wins the grand final. Congratulations. And, and because you can't have the whole netball team go and hold the trophy at once, it looks a bit awkward, they just invite the captain up and she lifts up the trophy and she goes, what does she say? Does she say, I won? Well, if she does, then you probably think, I'm not going to be on your team next year, right? <laughs> it's not I won, is it? It's we won. As she holds up the trophy, she does that. In a way, you're holding up the trophy. You're part of that team, aren't you? She represents you. Or when Donald Trump sends off yet another tweet in the middle of the night, why does everybody in America freak out? Well, not everybody, but why do a lot of people freak out? Because they go, he's not just a random dude on Twitter. He's the president. And when he says something, that has the potential to be what America thinks and what America's... He's a representative, right? Not just an individual. So when Jesus dies bearing your sins, you have really, your, your, your punishment has been completely meted out, completely met. So the New Testament says things like, in Romans 6, we died with Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. When he bore your, your sins and took your punishment, then it was really done. There's no more to pay. He's your substitute because he is our representative. And notice, though, here in the passage, notice that it doesn't just end with his suffering. And I wish I could have more time to speak more about this. But notice that the very beginning and end of this whole passage starts with the vindication, the exaltation of this servant of the Lord. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him, verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations, which is a priestly act of sort of providing atonement, and kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they were not told, for what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will now understand. He will be vindicated. Or the end of chapter 53. Therefore, says the Lord, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because he suffers, bearing our sins, 
he will be exalted and lifted up. And when was the last time we saw someone exalted and lifted up in the book of Isaiah? Back in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord exalted, high, lifted up. This is the trajectory of Jesus the servant. To death, and then raised in glory. Well, how do we wrap this up? I want you to imagine for a moment, I don't mean to make life difficult for you by imagining this, I want you to imagine for for a moment what it's like to be truly sick. Imagine you're sick. You can be sick and know it, right? And when you're sick and you know it, and someone says, here is the remedy for your sickness. If you say, I don't want that remedy, that's a bit of a tragedy. But if you're really sick and you know it and a remedy is provided, what you want to do is you want to grab hold of that remedy and take it so that you might be well. Sometimes, of course, people are sick and they don't know it. Therefore, they don't think they need a remedy. That too is a great tragedy, isn't it? What does this passage remind us? Is that we all like sheep, and sheep are dumb, have gone astray. We've all wandered to our own way. We've rejected God's word, his way. We've rejected him as God of our lives. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his words, we are healed. There are so many people on this campus who are sick because of this, like in sin, sick in their relationship with God and don't know it and therefore reject the remedy. But if you don't come to Christ in faith, then you face his just wrath against your sin yourself. As we've come into three weeks of the EU trying to reach out with the good news of Jesus, remember as you walk how many are sick and don't know it. Give them an opportunity to find out. But of course, you might, you might know that spiritually you're sick and you might, you might know that you've not taken hold of that remedy in Christ. Can I, brother, sister, can I encourage you to take hold of that? Because only in him will you find the remedy of life. But I wonder whether sometimes the situation is, yes, I know I'm spiritually sick, Yes, I know Jesus is the remedy. And yes, I've even taken that remedy and I know that I'm now well with God spiritually, but I just, I sort of am now taking the remedy for granted. If there's something that this passage should do for each of us, it's to remind us of just how sick we actually were and how precious that remedy actually is. See, because where does this servant passage lead in the rest of these this in Isaiah, to two things. First of all, to celebration. Sing, chapter 54. It's all about when you understand what God has done in the servant, you want to rejoice because, and it says things like, you no longer are you need to be ashamed because actually God has done this wonderful thing. And then in chapter 55, it's all about, so come, you who are sick, you who need this, come. 
and be part of it. And here is the answer to the forgiveness problem. Do you see that? Because ultimately, when you sin against me, why can I forgive you? Because I know your sin has been borne by somebody else. I don't need to extract justice out of you when I know justice has been meted out on Jesus for that sin. And not just for your sin against me, but for my sin against you and for our sins against God. It has all been resolved there in the servant. That's what empowers us to forgive one another as we embrace the forgiveness God secures for us in the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant.